Hello, I'm Cassie Gillespie, and you're listening to Welcome to the Field, a podcast for child welfare workers, caregivers, and community partners. Today, we are welcoming back the Child Protection Team from UVM Medical Center's Child Safe Program, and we'll be talking about the top 10 myths of child abuse that they encounter in their work. If you're not familiar with the Child Protection Team, they're made up of Mary Ellen Rafus, LMSW, Tracy Wagner, Forensic RN, and Dr. James Metz, child abuse pediatrician. The child protection team conducts multidisciplinary team evaluations of children who are suspected of being maltreated so that they receive standardized and appropriate medical care. They're also amazing to work with, and we're so happy to welcome them back. Okay, here we go. So welcome to the child protection team. Thanks for coming in today. Uh, In the studio, we have Tracy Wagner, forensic nurse. Hello. Hey. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for coming, Tracy. We also have Dr. James Metz. Hello. Thanks for coming. And um, Mary Ellen Refuse, licensed MSW. Hi. Okay, today we're going to do something different. We're going to do the top 10 myths about child abuse, and the child protection team is going to walk us through them. So we're going to count backwards from 10 to 1, and we're going to start with the number 10 myth. And Tracy is going to let us know. That's about the categories of abuse. Is that right? That's right. So the top 10, the number 10 myth is physical abuse, neglect, and sexual abuse are the three categories of childhood maltreatment. And actually, there are two additional categories that um, include medical child abuse and intrafamilial child torture. So medical child abuse is a form of child abuse defined as a child receiving unnecessary and harmful or potentially harmful medical care at the instigation of a caregiver. The diagnosis of medical child abuse focuses on the harm to the child and is not based on the motivation or mental health of the the perpetrator. Did that have a different name historically that we used to go by? Yes. Um, We used to really focus on um, the parent and the mental health of the parent or the caregiver and not um, and describe it as the, according to the mental health of the caregiver and not in terms of the harm being done to the child. So some people might think of it as uh, Munchausen by proxy, uh, but the the better term for it now is medical child abuse. Okay. I was thinking we used to call it something different, so that's helpful for, for getting us straight there. Okay. Sorry. I'll let you continue. The second um, category is intrafamilial child torture. And this this category is newly or fairly newly being defined and um, refined. But at this time, it's defined as at least um, two physical assaults or a single extended incident and two or more elements of psychological maltreatment. So torture is an extreme form of child abuse and recognizing the early signs of it has the potential to reduce the significant morbidity and mortality associated with it. Wow. Every time you guys, every time I listen to you talk, I'm just blown away by by the work you do. Okay. We're going to go to number nine. So Mary Ellen's going to tell us this is about adolescence. And I think um, I think this one might be especially relevant, not just for family service workers, but probably also for caregivers and other folks in the system. All right. So number nine is that adolescents don't need their injuries evaluated by a medical provider. 
So although what's included in the standard workup may be more dependent on the disclosure from a youth, it's, it is still important for adolescents to receive a medical evaluation when they have injuries that are suspected to be from abuse. Their medical workup might still include head imaging or x-rays of specific body parts. Additionally, it's still important to consider the plausibility of the explanation regarding their injuries, and it can be really useful to have a medical opinion on that. Lastly, the medical evaluation can help ensure that injuries are being assessed independently from concerns regarding the youth's behaviors. Is that some of the reasons that they don't typically or, or that they may get overlooked because people are attributing them to the behaviors? Yeah, I think there's a common misperception that um, when adolescents get abused physically, it's in a, a mutual altercation with the parents, mm-hmm. and then the adolescent's injuries may be overlooked. Good point. Thank you. Okay, James, we're coming to you for number eight. This one looks like it's going to be about skeletal surveys. Right. So this one is particularly relevant for medical providers who may be thinking about getting a skeletal survey on a child. So the myth is that if there are no fractures seen on an initial skeletal survey, then that rules out abuse. And so let me just say, um, for those who aren't up to date on what a skeletal survey is, a skeletal survey is a a bunch of x-rays, actually 21 x-rays of a child, to make sure that there are no injuries to the child uh, that we can't see with with our eyes. So when a child comes in with a bruise or any sort of injury... Uh, and they're of the right age, and that's usually under two years of age, we want to make sure that they don't have additional injuries. So we get a skeletal survey on that child. And the myth is that often providers think that if it's negative, then the child hasn't been abused. But what we know is that the injury in and of itself that brought them to the care of a medical provider, so the bruise or the abrasion on their arm or whatever other injury they might have might be the only sign of abuse and there might not be a fracture associated with that. So in that situation, uh, how would you uncover abuse then? Well, um, it's a great question. What you have to be aware of is that some injuries, such as a bruise on a little child, is highly specific and highly concerning for abuse. So just that bruise in and of itself needs to be explained and further investigation needs to be pursued to make sure that the child is safe. Okay. I have another question about this for you. Why is it that we typically do these on children two years old or younger? So a skeletal survey, the standard of care is for any child and their siblings uh, with a suspicion of abuse gets a skeletal survey. And the reason for that is that those children under two years of age can't often tell us what happened and if they have additional injuries. And so we think that when you're older, three, four, five years of age, you can start to localize your injury. You can start to talk and tell us something might have happened. uh, And it's more easy or it's easier to see a child who's maybe in pain or um, having a limp or something else uh, that might be indicative of abuse. That makes sense. As a parent, one of the things I was really surprised about is how old your kiddos are before they can tell you, like, if they have an earache or something, right? You just, does your ear hurt? And they really can't connect it for you. Thank you. Tracy, coming back to you with number seven. So tell me about um, children who have been sexually abused and if there's physical findings, that myth. Okay. 
So we do know that less than 5% of children will have medical findings that substantiate sexual abuse. Abnormal genital findings are rare, even in cases where the abuse has been factually proven by other forms of evidence. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, Many of the acts are nonviolent, for example, fondling. Um, Injuries that do result from sexual abuse tend to heal quickly. And I always use this example when I'm talking with families, think about biting the inside of your cheek and how quickly that heals. Um, And in most instances, exams of child victims don't take place on the same day as the alleged um, act of abuse because kids have delayed disclosures. And also kids tend to minimize the extent of the contact, and and so then they report and report weeks or months after the abuse event. I think what's most important to share is that a normal exam neither confirms nor rules out sexual abuse. And an exam provides good reassurance to a child. So actually, if you turn those numbers upside down, we can say 95% of the time to the child that their body is healthy. And that's a really powerful message. Okay, thank you. Mary Ellen, we have a myth here around what happens when the child safe team is involved with cases. And as you know, you know, we have family service workers who listen to this podcast and other folks at family services, but also caregivers and community partners. So this one might be very relevant for everybody. Sure. So the myth would be that whenever child safe gets involved and sees a patient, our team makes a, a new report to DCF. Um, But there are lots of times when we see patients either in the hospital or our outpatient clinic where the information we learn through medical evaluation, psychosocial assessment, or a combination of the two indicates a plausible explanation for the child's injuries exists or our concern that abuse or neglect occurred is low. Just like we try to be transparent with families when we are, are reporting to DCF in the instance where our involvement has ruled out the concern, for abuse or neglect from our institution, then we would share that assessment with the family as well. So I'm going to make up my own myth here, but this is one that I've heard, is that everyone you work with came to you from DCF. And so there's a flip side to this where you're seeing plenty of patients in the clinic, right, who the referral source is not family services. Is that right? That's correct. We have um, referrals from outside primary care physicians. Families can refer if they have a concern. Um, And Many of the kids we see inpatient, we are alerted by the inpatient medical team, and there may or may not already be DCF involvement or a report about the incident that led to the consult. That makes sense. So for those cases especially is where folks should know that there won't always be a report. James, I'm going to come over to you. We're at myth number five. Okay. There's a lot of misunderstanding about abusive head trauma or what we used to call shaken baby syndrome. And one of the things that we hear a lot is that a baby can have bleeding into their brain from simple coughing or choking episodes. And I think what we know from the literature and from years of studying it is that it takes something more than just a cough or an episode of vomiting to cause the kind of bleeding that we see in abusive head trauma. So we know that kids are pretty resilient. That's why we all went into pediatrics. And we also know that children are pretty rough and tumble. And we see children being uh, thrown up into the air by their parents and playing with their siblings. But we don't see bleeding in the head 
or abusive head trauma from those situations that are pretty innocuous or pretty safe. And so we know from this experience that in order to get those findings of bleeding in the head or bleeding in the eyes or the skull fracture that we sometimes see in abusive head trauma, there has to be some significant injury uh, that caused it. So if we get a child that comes into the emergency department or that comes into the hospital and has all of these findings associated or that are concerning for abusive head trauma and we don't have a, a story like the child fell out of a window or was in a car accident or something significant, it makes us very concerned that there is something more going on and that there has to be further investigation to find out what that injury was that caused the bleeding in the head or uh, other symptoms that we see in cases of abusive head trauma. Fascinating. So I have a follow-up question here, which is maybe a left-hand turn, so you let me know. But, you know, we're talking about healthy babies, right, not having bleeding in their head from coughing or choking. Is that different for adults? Well, it's a good question. I don't think we, we probably don't know the complete answer to that, but I think it's pretty safe to say that uh, adults also don't have significant bleeding in their heads from coughing or choking. We do see, you know, bleeding on the whites of the eye in adults who have coughing or pertussis or um, who have had uh, bouts of vomiting. Um, we do see that, and we know that kids, we just don't see that in kids. So, while there are some similarities between children and adults, there is um, some significant differences in the injury pattern uh, with children and adults, especially when it comes to uh, brain injuries. Okay. Thank you. Number four. Mm -hmm. Back to you, Tracy. Tell us about bruises and whether or not they can be dated. Wow. I think first sometimes we have to stop and identify whether what we're seeing is actually a bruise. There is a pretty common birthmark called slate gray spot that looks like a bruise. A bruise, however, is trauma and it appears as an area of discolored skin because of the rupture of these teeny tiny blood vessels called capillaries. Bruises are usually painful because that blood that is leaking is taking up space in the tissues where it shouldn't be. And bruises don't blanch. So if you take your fingertip right now and you press it on another fingertip, you'll see your skin turn white and quickly, I hope, <laughs> return to normal color. These are the minute capillaries that, that stop their work for a minute when you apply pressure and then they continued on when you let up. So bruises can be at the level of the skin. They can be underneath um, to the subcutaneous tissue, muscle, and bone. And most bruises aren't a medical problem. You, you know, we, we do worry when there are bruises to the head or neck and because head injuries tend to bleed heavily um, because there's lots of blood vessels there taking care of your very important brain. And we worry about neck bruises because you have vessels that are nourishing the brain and the rest of the body. Um, we all have personal experience with bruises and we think we know red and purple bruises are fresh and... There are some studies that talk about a yellow color of bruising doesn't appear until 18 to 24 hours after the injury. But no matter what, we cannot accurately date a bruise at this time. I think someone will maybe win the Nobel Prize, perhaps, when they figure that out. There's lots of, lots of uh, um, interest in this topic, as you can guess. Folks are researching right now as we speak. But we can't date bruises. It's just too imprecise. 
And the reason for that, there's many variables. The type of tissue that gets injured, wear on the body, like looser tissue bruises earlier sometimes, the mechanism of the injury, the health and nutritional status of a child, medications they might be taking, the age of the child, and a simple one is color, interpretation, and perception. You you might see blue and I'm seeing pink. So we can't can't match them up to a date or time at this point in time. And this is maybe a silly question, but mm. why would mm. people want to date bruises in the first place? Like, why does it matter? I think when we're trying to figure out when an injury occurred or um, sometimes pinpoint it down to an exact time. Okay. That's obviously very important in all the ways our work intersects. Yeah. Yeah. Just didn't want to assume that there wasn't another reason there. Mm. Mary Ellen, I think you're up with myth number three. Um, Sure. This one's about ingestions and whether all ingestions of Suboxone or Methadone are a sign of supervisory neglect. Ingestions are a pretty common occurrence and hot topic um, that our team gets involved in a lot. But we are here to let everyone know that not every ingestion is the result of supervisory neglect. We all know that once children become mobile, They can get into things in a matter of seconds and the accidents occur. The things our team hope people will consider when thinking about ingestions and neglect are the context surrounding how the child got the medication, the child's developmental level and length of time they may have been unsupervised, and the possibility of a delay in accessing medical care. But most importantly, we believe that ingestion of Suboxone or Methadone should be considered in the same light as any other prescribed medication that a child may get their hands on. And one of the reasons um, this is a myth that we like to debunk is that if it's based on subjective factors or other concerns about the people who are prescribed Suboxone or Methadone, it can lead to increased bias around reporting. And in your experience, uh, is there more of like a heightened awareness or worry when the ingestion is Suboxone or Methadone as opposed to a different type of prescription medication? There's a perception of a heightened sense of worry, but that's not necessarily like in correlation with the actual harm that could come to the child. There are plenty of other prescription medications that could cause significant medical complications as well. That makes sense. Thanks for making it visible. Those are the those intersections between values and practice, right, that you can run right into. Okay. James, back to you uh, again with little babies and their brains. (laughs) Tell me myth number two. Great. Myth number two is about skull fractures in little babies. And I think the reason we spend so much time thinking about the brain and the skull and the head of little babies is because it's so, the brain is such an important part of babies and it's growing so rapidly that it's really important to take note of and to really think about Uh, especially in cases where there might be abuse. So the myth is that all skull fractures in little babies are a sign of abuse. Well, what we know is that the babies uh, and children's skulls are different than adults. For one thing, babies' skulls have these sutures or these areas in them that are not fused together at birth. And so we know that it takes a few years for all of these uh, bones to grow together. It's kind of, I think of it like the tectonic plates that are moving around. And then at some point in a baby's growth, they all join together and are fused. And so in adults' skulls, the bones are all fused together, but in in babies, they're not. Also, we know that the thickness of the bone in babies uh, is still growing. 
And so the skull bone is not at the same um, density as a adult skull. And so if a baby is falls off of a changing table or falls out of a parent's arms, uh, which we see fairly frequently, and their head hits the ground, even if it's on a carpet or something else that might be not so hard as like cement, they can still get a skull fracture. And those skull fractures can have very different appearances and be in different places on the skull and, and have different shapes. But there's no one fracture pattern or even one fracture that is specific for abuse. So the example is a child is in the parent's arms. They're trying, the parent's trying to get into the house with a bag of groceries in one hand and a baby in the other arm and the baby wriggles around and falls onto the floor and the parent takes the child into the emergency department because they have a big goose egg on their head and they get an x-ray or a CT scan which shows a skull fracture. And immediately some medical providers or DCF uh, workers will think that that's abuse regardless of the parent's story. So we get involved, hopefully sooner than later, and can look at the x-rays, look at the CT scans, hear the story, and hopefully make the medical provider uh, and or DCF worker understand that this might be a very plausible story and not be something more devious or or suggestive of abuse. Well, I suppose that's good news, right? That's happy news. Yes. I mean, I like Mary Ellen said, we feel like heroes when we rule out abuse yeah. or when we can say, no, this is, this is accidental and it's not abuse. Okay. I hope everyone's ready. We're up to the number one myth about child abuse and I'm sending it to you, Tracy. Okay. Did we save the best for last? Uh, you tell me. <laughs> the myth here is that children make up stories about child abuse. And it's really a prevailing misconception that children lie, and it's not supported by the literature. I think um, children are much more likely to lie about it not happening or to not talk about it at all than to make something up. And our culture, sadly, is still conditioned to disbelieve children, although I think it's better. But children are still expected by some to be seen and not heard. Um, we ask them to listen to adults. We ask them to be good, to obey. And the kids who are at risk, like those that have a lower level of supervision or might be needier for attention and affection or may have been abused or broken in before, um, may be less willing to risk telling and, and also may be less believed. There are many factors that, that influence an outcry. So age of a child, younger children are less likely to, to talk about things than older children. Gender differences. Um, girls, for example, are more likely to than boys to disclose sexual abuse. The relationship of the abuser. Children abused by a family member are more likely to delay disclosure. The closer the relationship is, actually, the less likely the child will tell. If there are threats to a child, they fear the abuser may hurt them or one of their family members. If there's a lack of opportunity, if there isn't that safe adult to talk to, um, and also abuse may be harder to talk about over time, it's harder to reveal. If there's shame involved, 
fear of the consequences for others. Kids can have the developmental capacity to anticipate their parents' reactions or worry about the impact of the disclosure, what that disclosure will have on their family. Grooming is another factor that influences outcries. Um, Kids might not know it's wrong or don't recognize the experience as abuse. And then polyvictimization comes into play, too. Kids with um, physical abuse histories may be more reluctant to disclose. So it's a difficult and uncomfortable topic, thinking about child abuse in general. Um, It's hard for anyone to talk about. And kids need to know that uh, we're listening and we'll take action when they talk with us. I think it's also important to understand that the care is a collaborative effort. So family Law enforcement, DCF, child protection, medical, and mental health all work together to take care of kids. That's great. I'd love to dig a little deeper there if we can, because um, I think at times there's a prevailing narrative that that that's true and that there are these other times where there's at least a worry. And so let, let me ask you about that, like situations where a child is alleged to have been coached or situations where there's concern that a child was victimized, but that for whatever reason, um, there seems to be suspicion that the alleged perpetrator they're naming is not the actual alleged perpetrator. And and my guess is that your team comes up against those situations. And so what, how would you, um, I guess, talk back to those narratives in relation to that larger myth that you want to debunk about kids really telling the truth when they come forward? Mm-hmm. That's super hard <laughs> to, <laughs> to sort out sometimes. Um, I think, well, kids can certainly be suggestible. So it is possible that kids um, can have a narrative displayed before them and they can repeat that to others. Um, so I, I think it's really just listening to all sides of the story, looking at the episode or, or the concern in context. Are there other behaviors going on? Um, Are there other worries? And then in the long run, if we can't figure things out, (laughs) um, just building the walls of protection around kids as best we can. So cutting down the extraneous people and contacts and watching children and being alert and being ready to listen at any time. I'm sure my partners have other thoughts around this, but it's it's a really difficult situation. We don't always come out of an exam knowing exactly what happened and um, what to do about it. I I think just to add on to that, I think that the most powerful thing we can do for children is to give them a voice. And when they may not be able to express what's going on, they might not know the words, but the more that we are able to empower them to be able to speak about their experiences and to share those experiences with people they trust, the more protected they will eventually be. And I think that, you know, it's unsettling to leave an exam room not knowing what happened or if a child is being abused or not. It's really a very difficult part of our our job. That said, you know, what gives us hope and allows us to continue doing this is that over time in the right setting, that child will be able to tell their story and be able to tell what is happening to them and hopefully will be able to get the protection that they need. I think interestingly, too, it's easier for people um, to not believe children when the concern is around sexual abuse. And I think some of that might be just related to 
adults' comfort level in hearing those disclosures and how to support kids when that's what they're talking about. So I would just echo that offering kids the tools to feel empowered and talk about it. Um, and hopefully the adults in their lives will catch up to speed as well and, and become comfortable addressing their concerns. Thank you. So thank you so much for coming in today. It is such a pleasure to have you here in the studio. And um, if folks want to ask you questions or follow up with you, what's the best way for them to reach you? Um, we have a shared email that people can reach out on. It's childprotectionteam at uvmhealth.org. And we monitor that every day. So people are welcome to get a hold of us with questions. Okay. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Field is produced by the Vermont Child Welfare Training Partnership and the state of Vermont. Our music is composed and performed by local band Brick Drop, and our sound production and engineering has been brought to you by Esmond Communications and Egan Media Productions. For Welcome to the Field, I'm Cassie Gillespie, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>